Welcome back to 24 Faithful. We are excited to be back. I am Joshua Rivers, your host, joined also by Joel Wood and Bradley Adams. Good to have you guys with us. Hello. Bradley coming to us from Alamosa, Colorado today. Lovely. Colorado is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, but today we get to delve into a new season well, new season for as far as our ongoing conversation here, but it is uh, not new to many of us that have seen the season many, many, many times. And so we are talking about season number four. We're going to get into the first six episodes here and 24 style. They, they come in with a bang, um, uh, literally on a train. And so they, <laughs> so, so they, they like to be able to do that. And, but For setting up the season here for season four, it takes place 18 months after season three, and then it is about six years after season one. And so I think it's really interesting being able to kind of keep those dates in perspective as we're looking at it, because we can be able to kind of see the progression that that happens through for Jack and as well as for CTU. And so... And so at the end of season three, we had Jack obviously going through what we deemed as being his worst day ever. And he goes through and he's, he's going through and during there, we didn't talk a whole lot about the uh, debriefing and questioning he was going through regarding his heroin addict. Uh, but he had a lot of that going on for uh, the, the last half of the season. And that carries on past season three into Aaron Driscoll becomes the new director of CTU and she's working with Jack for a while or Jack's working there for a while. And she calls him into the office. If you, uh, there's a video that shows this um, prequel for season four and you have Aaron that brings him in and says, Jack, I got to let you go um, more or less. And, she, she even states, what I think is really interesting, is she states that, okay, I, I can understand all the disobedience and going off book and doing all that. Okay, that's one thing. But I can't handle the heroin thing. And so she lets him go because of that. And and then she's trying to be nice, trying to be the nice boss. Oh, yeah, I'll, I, I can make a recommendation. I can be able to help, help you get that next job, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay. And then... And then Joel, you alluded to this to where he, he walks out and he says, I can get my own job. And that's not exactly what he said. No, yeah, he, he colored it. <laughs> he colored it. it is not PG 13 um, quality uh, language that is used. And so, and so, so anyway, so, so that's where it leads off there. And then you fast forward, he gets a job working for the department of defense and he's uh, reporting basically directly to uh, the director of defense uh, or secretary of defense, who is James Heller. And he gets into a relationship with Heller's daughter, Audrey, which that can never go wrong. And, but they're doing this secretly behind his back for months. Um, But anyway, so, so that's kind of leading into this here in, in season four, but as I mentioned, that there is a train that is attacked 
uh, right there at 7 a.m. And uh, there is a um, something stolen from the train as well. And so this is where we where we come in and, and Jack and Heller and them, they're in Los Angeles now. And they're supposed to be doing some negotiation and things like that when it comes to budgets and and all that. And Jack is the the point man for this job. And so there's all kinds of awkward things that are coming into play right here in the beginning. And it's really interesting. I think it's strange watching it. Well, particularly for a couple of reasons. One, it's strange. And we'll come on to the, the sort of the brand new CTU aspect in a second. But it is weird watching season four directly after season three as we have been doing and seeing how different it is and how different everything feels. But it's particularly weird watching Jack because we see that he kind of, he quite likes this new job. We see his opening scene with Audrey, which is really nice. It's a lovely way to introduce Audrey. It's a lovely way to introduce sort of the new normal of Jack Bauer or what Jack Bauer is trying to be at this stage. It's weird it it doesn't seem quite right to sort of see him in a suit and go to a budget meeting and not being the one in the field taking down Thomas Sherrick or doing all the other stuff. It It's strange that he's not the one doing that. But it does also work for the brief time that he is doing it, which I think is, is quite nice. It's kind of weird seeing Jack in that capacity because it almost goes against everything that we've learned about Jack the previous three seasons. Like every other than President Palmer, of course, um, we've gotten the uh, inclination that Jack is uh, sort of uh, an anti-authority. Um, picturing Jack in doing a uh, a desk job per se is not something that you would, if you watch the previous three seasons, it would seem kind of out of place. Um, because it's it's kind of like the same conversation that you know, he had with Chase in season three and the conversation that Chloe had with, uh, with Kim about Chase. Do you really think he's going to take a, jet, a desk job? Because that's something that we never would have thought Jack would do, but that's essentially what he does at the beginning of season four. Um, but you could tell, especially once he got to CTU, and he started asking all these questions and um, trying to find out what was going on. That you kind of you kind of got the inclination that he wasn't really fully out of that that world. That he hadn't fully let that part of his life go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's a there's a saying I've I've heard. I don't know if they have saying like this over over in the UK, uh, Bradley, but they, they have this saying where it's like, okay, well, this person, they'll, they'll drop it or they'll fight at a drop of a hat and they'll even drop the hat. <laughs> and that's almost like Jack. Um, it's like, it's like as soon as there's something that needs to be taken care of, he can't sit back and just let somebody else do it. Uh, he, he tries it at various times throughout the seasons. We see him trying to just kind of sit back, let everybody else take care of it. Hey, it's not my job. He tried doing that in season two at the beginning. And finally he got back to his car and he's like, okay, I, I can't just walk away from this. And so he walks back in and he gets involved. And that's what happens here in season four again is he's, he's stepped away from the CTU 
life. He stepped away from being in the field. And so now he's quote unquote happier. Um, and, but he's there and this whole thing goes down with Sherrick, as you mentioned, and he's not part of the takedown, but he's watching it on video and it's really interesting. So even though he's not in the room there, he's noticing a video. It's like, Hey, there's that, that part that's off. Got to watch that. Go look at that over there. And it's, it's like his, his senses are so keen to that. It's like he, he can't even help, but being able to notice that kind of thing and be able to jump in. And then as soon as Heller is taking, he's like, okay, forget this. I'm going out there. I'm getting him. And, and he has to go against, against everything else to, to be able to do it. But yeah, it's in his blood to just jump in and take action. It's his instinct, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned that he tries to get out a few times. Season two, he's sort of apathetic, miserable, depressed. We talked about it before. I mean, season eight is the other key one when he tries to do it. And when he does end up getting back in in season eight, it's, well, I kind of have to. It's, I'm being forced back in. I don't really have a choice. Everything's sort of running through me at this stage. I might as well. Even when he's in, sort of Kim convinces him to stay. He's going to leave and Kim keeps him staying there. This time, he he obviously said to Audrey that he could have found different field work, he could have gone to private security, done whatever, if he wanted to stay in the field, and he didn't. And I think that's not so much him wanting to get out of field work. I think it's him trying to tell himself that he wants to get out of field work and saying, you've lost your wife, you know, whatever's happened with Kim at this stage, who even knows, all of this stuff, and... and I've got now a relationship with uh, with Audrey and that's really lovely. And I can actually be the sort of normal everyday person that I've not been able to be for the last 10, 15 years. I think a lot of it is him trying to tell himself that, that that's what he wants. And then we see with the Sherrick takedown on the video and going to ask Chloe for the information and then the actual Sherrick interrogation. I think the fact that we've spent half an hour of Jack in the suit and then seeing, oh no, he he wants to get back into it. I think that does slightly enhance what is already a great scene in the <coughs> interrogation scene. But we see in that that it, it is just instinct. It is just second nature to go. Right, there's a situation here that I can help. I'm gonna th- I'm gonna forget the desk job. I'm going all in. And it, it's so good to see it. It's so. I mean, it, it's crucial for 24, obviously. But it's a lot of fun to see Jack go from. I'm working a desk job. I don't want to be out in the field to, I'm going to shoot this guy in the knee. It's, um, I mean, he, he really can't help himself. Um, being in CTU and being in that environment was probably the worst thing for him. Um, because when he's in that environment, he just, whether he's there as a visitor, whether he's there working, he, he just can't help himself to get involved. Um, and when, when he gets back in the CTU, you see him, you see him looking around like, I can't believe I'm back here. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the last time he was there is when Driscoll fired him. So he, he has a lot of positive memories of his job, but he also has a lot of negative ones. I've been fired, lost my wife, fitted to heroin. You know, he's, he's had a lot of, of negative memories of that job forever, for 
as many positive ones as he had. Um, and even Audrey asked him when, when they were in the, the hotel room, like, is this going to be awkward for you? And yeah, it's going to be awkward for him, you know, because he's, he's basically negotiating with the boss that fired him about a, a budget. And it's kind of, it's kind of uh, funny to see him sitting across from Driscoll while she's sliding him a proposal for a budget and him saying, well, you, that's not going to work because you can't justify it. Knowing that if Jack was in Driscoll's seat, <laughs> Jack, Jack would have been probably pushing just as hard for that proposal. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of it's kind of funny seeing Jack being the one that's kind of playing the hardline stance towards CTU. Um, but it's it's you knew that even without watching the season before, you knew that as soon as he walked step foot in CTU it would not take him long to get back into what he's used to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was going to say, when it came to, uh, you mentioned there about him taking that, that hard stance when it came to the budget and things like that. I, I think if it was a different person, if Tony was still the CTU director, there wouldn't have been any problems. They would have been up there. They would have been having fun catching up and then, Oh yeah, here, let's sign on the line. <laughs> But it's it's yeah. Driscoll, and so he's like, "Yeah, I'm not going to cut any slack here. <laughs> you fired, make you work. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just it. She can't. <laughs> you so you fired me. I'm not giving you any more money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be careful who you fire. <laughs> but but one thing I thought was interesting too is I, I totally forgot um, about this. But but Jack comes in the CTU and. Uh, and he's met uh, – Chloe comes up to him and, and says hi and all that kind of stuff. But then Curtis is there, and 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 I had totally forgot that. I mean, I started looking – and so he's – they already worked together some before Jack was fired. And so they're just talking like, hey, how you doing? We're catching up. And for us watching, it's like, okay, here's this totally new character, but apparently Jack has this relationship already. And so um, I, I totally forgot about that until – watching this and then doing a little bit of research. And so, so I thought that was interesting. So there's a couple of weird things about this. Joel, you mentioned about Jack coming in and having that look of, I can't believe I'm back here sort of thing. And obviously the Curtis interaction and the prequel as well, because I think it was John Casal said in an interview at some point that they structured the episode in terms of direction and, and shooting and everything. They built the episode so that, when Jack comes to CTU is when we sort of get that big look of the new CTU, the new desks, the new offices, the, just the entire new layout, because it is obviously a, a completely new design. It's a different building, actually, that they ended up in. Um, I think both in terms of set and within the story, it's a different building that CTU moved to. But the whole premise of, of, of that was that we get to see the brand new CTU when Jack does, and yet we have this, the fact that Curtis and Jack were together before and the fact that he was obviously there with Erin and, and you see in the prequel that the office is, uh, it, or her office at least, is the same as it is in season four. And I think you know maybe there's some building work still going on on the rest of the main floor and it's just not fully completed. So he gets to see the fully completed sign for the first, site, first time. 
but it, it is a little bit weird that that ends up sort of going against what we we're meant to be feeling. Um, but it, it, it is actually really nice. Uh, it, it kind of surprises me thinking about it that in the story, they didn't completely do this redesign after season two when the place got bombed. They did a few, there are a few changes in season three to it structurally, but it, it's kind of weird that having been bombed in season two, they didn't at that point think, oh, let's move to a different building or let's take this opportunity to redesign the place. I know it's after season three that they do this. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, it looks nice, doesn't it? Well, it, 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 looks, it looks nice. It, um, stylistically, it looks the same, but you see things kind of rearranged to not look the same. Um, but I mean, it looks, it looks, I mean, if you want to talk a a drastic change, just look at season eight, but we'll get there later. Um, but I thought, I thought it looked pretty, they still had the same annoying ringtone on the phones. They still had the same, you know, the office was still set up the same. Everything still looked the same. It's just things were placed in, in a different position. So when you came in, you know, instead of a desk being here, a desk is all the way over here. You know, there's, there's now a cage here where there wasn't a cage before, you know, it's, it's little, little things, but I, I think that, you know, me personally, if my government building just got bombed, you know, I'm looking at other real estate. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm looking at real estate in a different location. Um, but that's, that's, that's just me. You know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not really fond of being bombed. So I guess maybe that's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I can't agree that it looks yeah. the same. It's just color scheme, layout of everything, uh, sort of just just everything about it looks completely different. Uh, I don't know about that one. They built it as well. So fun fact, they built it because, or they, they did this because the whole idea of it, or at least some of the idea of it was that it gives them better access for shots because obviously with the, the previous one, there were sort of the, the near side where the, like the conference room side of, of the building was, um, it's sort of all not office off, but like there are sort of the, the greats and whatever, um, that were giving sort of Michelle and whoever that sat there, their own almost private space on the main floor. Uh, and obviously everything at all the other desks were, uh, perpendicular opposite each other whereas this it actually does, gives it does it does have a more wider view yeah. to it than uh, the previous versions because the previous versions they look a lot more condensed yeah. a lot more of a condensed space um, but in season four you can you can tell that there's a lot more room than in previous seasons yeah there's a lot of open space which they wanted to make the shots better essentially um, and and in terms of sort of functionality for the for the workers it it improves as well i reckon mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and talking about like doing the remodeling getting things completely new i mean obviously pretty much the whole ctu staff is new other than Everyone. chloe and so <laughs> And so, and so we're like introduced to a whole new staff. It, it almost seems like that every season there's like almost a completely new staff at CTU other than maybe one or two people. Um, 
and I don't know. Maybe, maybe there, I'm wrong. there are on occasion, yeah. There are quite there's a few a lot of seasons where a lot of new CTU personnel come in, but no, there's no season like this where it feels like a complete reset in terms of Jack is out of CTU, the redesign of CTU, the fact that at the start of the season, I know we get lots of characters that return later in the season, but at the start of the season, Jack, Chloe, and Keela are the only three characters that we've met before, unless you count Driscoll having watched the prequel. I'm not. In the actual in, in the course of the 72 episodes, we've met three of the characters that appear in the first six episodes. Mm-hmm. So That's true. It, it, it does very much feel like a reset, and I, I mean, it works. It, it, it does work. I think that it, seasons one to three were fantastic, but we now get a chance to do something different and structure it in a different way because there is a, I think there was maybe a fear that as it was, all the ca- same characters, all the same, you know, the same location, everything about it, it's going to become a little bit repetitive. So you've got to throw different things into it to keep it fresh. So that's season two is, is Jack depressed and all the stuff that came with that bigger threat, switching away from the, the, the personal revenge plot from the Drazens to the nuclear bomb season three, you throw in the element of Jack and his heroin addiction, all that sort of stuff. Season four, you just change everything completely and you've got so much more scope to do so much more, so many more things with new characters. Yeah, and actually, um, that, that kind of leads us to the the next thing here. You mentioned there about um, season two, they went away from the personal. Well, in season four, they're bringing some of the personal back in right there in the first episode where we're introduced to the relationship between Jack and Audrey. And at the by the end of that episode, Audrey and Heller are kidnapped. And so it puts stakes. So it's almost a flashback to... Uh, season one and so jackson the situation i mean he's not being blackmailed in this case but he's um so so he's there and uh trying to deal with getting heller back with audrey and i would and he's probably struggling with his professional side oh i need to save the secretary of defense whereas on the personal side i need to get audrey (laughs) and i guess maybe on a personal sense saving audrey would help his relationship with the secretary of defense too but but yeah, so he's, it, I mean, but that was just a great scene when the kidnapping take place. I mean, it was very well orchestrated and for somebody to be able to coordinate all of that and be able to get it taken care of um, was obviously took a lot of planning and scheming and we'll find out that there's um, a lot more to it. But, uh, but yeah, you can definitely tell that there was some inside work being done to be able to set something like that up. Yeah, it, it it was you could you could tell because it's one of my pet peeves when they just have these scenes and these storylines that just come out of nowhere and just have nothing to do with the plot or anything that's really going on on the main on the main show. Um, but even if you're not if you haven't watched the season before, when you when you see the scene with Heller and his son. It just seems so out of place. Not the storyline per se, just the the presentation of the storyline, like where it takes place, at what point it takes place. Um, it just seems so out of out of place from everything else that's going on. 
And the fact that they kept flashing back to that, like going back to that scene as the the main stuff was going on, you kind of got a at least an inclination that okay, something's about to happen to the secretary because they keep cutting away from the main storyline for to to focus on Heller and his spoiled kid. So you you kind of got the hint that something probably was going to happen. And, you know, having, having Jack there and, you know, having him start to put the pieces together. Um, and then they kept cutting back to the secretary and his kid. It, it kind of gave you a foreshadowing of sorts that something bad was probably about to happen. So I really loved the first episode of this season and particularly this stuff with the secretary and Audrey. Um, there was the, uh, Hitchcock, the famous filmmaker, of course, uh, always talked about suspense and surprise and how it, in, in terms of a bomb under the table, if you don't tell the audience that it's there, you have 10 seconds of surprise when it goes off. But if you do tell them that it's there, you can have 10 minutes of suspense waiting for it to go off. And the first episode here manages to achieve both because you have from, I think about five minutes into the episode, Chloe mentions the intel about an attack at eight o'clock. And so you spend a lot of the hour thinking, well, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Sherrick comes in. Something's going to happen. Jack comes onto it. Something's going to happen at eight o'clock. And you spend the whole hour knowing that this is, there, there is an event that's going to happen at the end of the episode. And as you say, sort of, you can kind of put the pieces together that it's going to involve the secretary, given how much time they're spending on him in this fairly mundane setting, but you don't know what it is. So you have this suspense of what's going to happen at eight o'clock. And then the surprise of it's the secretary and Audrey being kidnapped. And so I, I, I just really love the way that they build through that. Um, and of course the, the interrogation with Sherrick, which we previously mentioned, but I think uh, it's part of the reset, isn't it? That in seasons two and three, we know a lot of the characters. And so when say in season two, Michelle comes into it, you can kind of introduce her quite easily pivoting around Tony and around Jack and around Mason. And that works. And in season three, you can introduce Chase pivoting around Kim and Jack and, and the same with Chloe. We know characters around them and they're interacting with them early on. So you can, you can introduce them that way with this. We sort of have it at the start with Audrey in the hotel room. And we, we get a good picture of her then and a, a brief insight into Hella. but then coming across to this scene with Richard, he's by himself and it's two characters that we don't know. And we're sort of thrown into understanding who they are and, and trying to get a gauge on them quite early on with no one around that we know in which to go, okay, no, I understand this in this context. I, th- I, I think it works though. I, I, I think that by the end of the first hour, aside from the connection to Jack, you are, you're, you're emotionally invested enough into Heller that his kidnapping is affecting, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree too. I mean, not just the kidnapping, but I mean the the the, the episodes coming after that as they are um, imprisoned, whatever they're 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 captured and they're they're in their Keller and Audrey together, and you see their interactions and and all of that, and um, 
you, you really start to be able to see them on a personal level. You start getting emotionally invested in them pretty quickly. Um, and it works really well, um, especially when you look over the whole scheme of things. I mean, both of them are important characters up through season nine. And so, um, and so we see and, and we get invested in them so much with that so that we're, we're seeing all the different things that are happening to where when we get to that scene to where they're trying to commit suicide in there basically by gassing themselves and we're, we're invested in their life at that point. And it's like, okay, we don't want them to go through whatever the torture is that they're about to go through, but we don't want to see them die like this either. And there, there's that struggle, but we get really invested in them um, pretty quickly and they do a really good job. Like, like you mentioned there being able to get some new two brand new characters for us to be invested in that quickly. Uh, they do a really good job um, being able to do that. William Blaine is particularly yeah. good through these episodes. He, 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 he really sells it and it, it's better for Hella than it is Audrey. I think these scenes in terms of characterization, because you get very quickly, he is this, obviously this secretary of defense. He's, he's top bureaucrat, but you do end up seeing a lot about him as a character. He's, he's loyal to himself and to Audrey and to his country more than anything. Uh, he's fiery. He's, he's almost got that Jack-like attitude of, no, no, uh, what, I think they come in and try and get him to sign the document confessing his crimes, and he just throws his tie at them. It, that's the sort of person that Heller is, and we see that, what, two episodes in. It's amazing. <laughs> um, he thinks on his feet with the whole sort of faking the heart attack and... Uh, uh, thinking in the when they're in the actual cell as it is, thinking that he needs to kill himself and to try and strangle him with the with the chains to help his country and, and to not put the U.S. government through the the embarrassment of seeing their sector of defense executed on the internet for everyone to see, uh, and and sort of again that ties into him committed. He's selfless. He's committed to doing the best thing for the country over himself. And we do get some good stuff for Audrey in this. You know, she's she's also fairly selfless. She's trusting in Jack and the government and her father. And she's really strong-willed. The fact that she gets through this as she does, it's really impressive. Again, Kim Raver, I think, is really good through this as well. But it's not quite the full picture of Audrey that we do see before this all happens with Jack in the hotel and what we'll see after with, with Jack and with Paul and in season five. That It's not quite the whole picture of her. Um, so I don't think it works on quite the same characterization level as it does for Hella, but it's it's pretty good for her as well. I do um, enjoy uh, Audrey for the most part. Um, she's the damsel in distress for most of the season, but unlike um, unlike Terry, it's not as annoying and you know, naive and clueless to what's going on around her as his wife was. Um, probably because, you know, she's in the political world. She's, um, I won't say she's probably, I won't say she's used to it, but, you know, it's probably, she's probably used to the negativity. Whereas uh, Terry kind of lives in her own little bubble. Um, but as far as, uh, Secretary of Defense, James Heller, you kind of had to have him because 
you could tell even in the conversations early in the season between Jack and uh, President Keeler um, that he does not have the same relationship with Keeler that he did with President Palmer. Um, Keeler is not as willing to acquiesce to Bauer's request <laughs> as Palmer was. Um, so Jack always, because I mean, it's inevitable that he's going to go against CTU at some point. That's like protocol for every season. It's inevitable. It's going to happen at some point. So he needs that high ranking political ally that he can go to when CTU is not, I guess, doing things the way that he needs them to be done or responding as fast as he needs them to respond. He needs that high-ranking political ally for when he does decide to go rogue, so to speak. Um, And since Palmer is no longer the president, um, that is where Heller comes in. And I think Heller does a good job of establishing a quick relationship with Jack. Um, He trusts Jack, obviously, um, based on their early parts of season four. You can tell that he he trusts Jack explicitly. Um, And he's very – he has the same characteristics as Palmer because they're both very defiant. Like, they they won't be bullied into uh, making decisions. And I think that's one thing that that I like about Heller is because he's not, he's not easily bullied into making decisions that might harm um, the country or the people that he loves. And I think that was very, uh, very presidential of Mr. Heller. Could that be foreshadowing anything? Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and in the process of Jack defying uh, CTU, um, one thing I think is interesting too is that from the beginning, Chloe has uh, has this friend uh, Andrew that that tips her off about. <laughs> something that's going on and there, there's this whole thing about eight o'clock and Chloe is stuck on the eight o'clock whereas Driscoll and everybody else for the most part is saying okay we already got the train bombing they were just wrong about the time blah 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 and Chloe's like no no there's got to be something at eight there's something going on at eight and Chloe shares that with Jack because she knows Jack if, he, if, if, if she can convince Jack then something could possibly get done and so Jack's like, okay, we got to look into this. And that's when he gets into the interrogation of Sherrick and, and shoots his knee and last minute, I mean, they don't, they find out, but not in time to be able to save Heller that Heller is the actual target. And, um, and it, it's just like, it's like, there's this proof put right in front of Driscoll. Okay. Chloe knows what she's talking about. Jack knows what he's talking about. They're not just, going crazy doing stuff but then she turns around and wants to do everything her own way anyway and it's like it doesn't matter what chloe and jack say and she continues that for a while and uh but chloe continues to back jack as jack sneaks off on his own to trail this guy um to that he anticipates is going to take them back to where heller is and so he's trailing him and (laughs) 
Chloe helps Jack by trying to uh, be able to guide him and try to get the um, satellite moved, which takes an incredibly long time. And, uh, but, but I, it, I, again, I mentioned it last, uh, I can't remember if it was last week, a week before or something like that with Chloe, that one of her things is that when she really believes in something and believes in someone, she is like deathly loyal, even if it means, um, like something negative toward herself, which in this case, she was putting her job on the line because she thought that Jack was doing the right thing. And so she was helping Jack trying to track this down and, I don't know. And I think this is where I really, really started to like Chloe was during this set of events. Well, Chloe, she, you can tell instantly at the start of the season, the fact that I think maybe her second conversation is with Driscoll and the whole eight o'clock thing. And she doesn't push back on it. Driscoll tells her to drop it and to go and work on whatever else. And Chloe doesn't push back on it. She doesn't persist and say, no, no, this is a thing. In season three, Chloe would have done that and Tony or Chappelle would have chewed her out for her personality and, and all the rest of it. Um, you can see from there that she sort of toned it down a little bit and when they talked last week about how no one would want to watch her or would want to watch the rest of the seasons if you, they, they knew that she was a big part of it based on season three, you get five minutes in season four and you realise that no, no, she's actually quite likeable now. Um, so that's quite good. The weird thing about these sequence of episodes in terms of trying to rescue Hella is that basically nothing happens between 9am and just before midday. There's about three hours where nothing happens because we pick up at 9am with Jack trailing Khalil from the train station. And then at about 11.45 Khalil drives into the, uh, the petrol tanker or whatever it is and kills himself. And in that time we've learned nothing about where Hella's being held We've made no progress about trying to find him. It's just been Jack delaying him getting to his destination so that Chloe can use get the satellite up and running. He, you know, there's the side of the road stop where he saves Andrew, which is a really nice scene. There's the stuff at the gas station where he takes them hostage. That's a lot of fun. It's complete nonsense, but it's a lot of fun nonsense. And then he ends up working again with CTU and they, and they follow him. And it's fine. But it was really quite staggering watching it back the other day. And I really love season four. But the, the whole premise of this sequence of episodes is that it takes two hours for Chloe to get a satellite feed up and running. In every other episode ever, that it would take like five minutes at most. And you kind of, I kind of look at this and think, well, there's a lot of filler going on here in, in a way that I didn't remember and that I don't think other episodes in other seasons and even in this season, I don't think they have that actually it, it, it's frustrating because like I say, a lot of it is, is good in the moment. And then you look at it and say, well, nothing happened for three hours. We've not, there's been nothing of significance for all this time. It, um, it's strange. From the moment Heller actually gets kidnapped, up until Jack makes the save, um, which is, by the way, one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. Um, just the, the buildup and the word and the wording and everything. It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. But in between those two events, it's kind of one of the slowest periods 
of 24 because a lot of the in-between stuff just seemed very unnecessary. Um, like Jack holding up a convenience store, um, then getting stopped by the cops as he's, as he's trailing the guy and, you know, just one phone call to Driscoll and all of a sudden, you know, the fact that he held up a convenience store and held up a cop at gunpoint is just out the window, you know. <laughs> so, um, some of that stuff was rather silly. Um, and it was a lot of filler stuff that probably could have been condensed. Um, but that is that is one of the problems that you run into when you do 24 episodes every single season is you want to save the, you want to save the high impact stuff for, for crucial moments, but it's hard to have um, high impact, high energy, you know, action packed episodes every single week. And I think one of the, one of the downfalls of that is that you get quite a bit of filler. And 24, 24 has its fair share of filler episodes every every season. Um, but in the first six episodes of season uh, four, I would say probably about half of them were filler episodes. And it's weird. I, I, think, I think a lot of this is indirectly caused by how relentlessly fun the end of season three was and how explosive this premiere was. Because you look at season one and the whole set of episodes where Kim's gone out and then Kim's been kidnapped and Jack doesn't know that he's been, she's been kidnapped and then he does know that she's been kidnapped. And it's, what, six hours later before <coughs> Jack rescues her from the moment Gaines calls him. I think it's about 5.45 and he gets to the compound just before midday. There's six hours there. And yet at no point watching those six hours did I feel like, oh, they're, they're filling time to get to the point where they rescue Kim and Terry. No, no, that, that whole sequence of episodes actually felt meaningful and it felt like we need to do this and we need to do this this way now in this, at this pace to actually get to our goal. Whereas with season four, I think it's partly they didn't quite know what to do with the story and partly that they wanted to have this, they, they, they've built themselves this platform now where 24 is the relentless action show. It's not the, the slow build. I, I know people look at season one and say, that's a really fast paced show, but it's not, not compared to the rest of the set of, of the seasons. Season one is, is, is a slow build and it builds that tension without trying to be explosive and trying to do 10 things at once in the same episode. Season three or the second half of season three onwards four five six especially try and do that they try and go at a million miles an hour and i think the consequence of that is that when you get a storyline like this where you know hell has been kidnapped at eight o'clock and you know that you want to pass a few hours before he's rescued and before or before they kill him or whatever it is that they're going to do to him how do you feel that how do you feel that and make it exciting i don't think there's really a way to do that. The way to do that is to revert back to the season one model of slow build tension, but they didn't quite get it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so, and 
talking about the filler, I mean, one of the, one of the things that comes up a lot throughout 24 is you always have it to where it's like one of the, one of the people is telling somebody else, Hey, this is, this is important. We got to make sure to do this, blah, blah, blah. And they're restating the mission over and over and over. It's like they're restating the mission every 30 minutes and reiterating it. And then the person responds, I know you don't have to keep reminding that. I don't know how many times that happens. Through. I mean, we should probably do a count on that sometime. <laughs> Just because I'm not here next week, I'm going to get this one in early. I know we're not talking about the next set of episodes yet, but I'm not here next week. (laughs) Episode 10 with Navi in the basement with Baruz. There are, I think, four conversations in the whole, in the same episode where they recap to the same people who Navi Araz is, what the lead is, what the connection is to Marwan and the the override, how they're going to stop him, where he is, what he's doing. They say this over and over. It says twice, I think, to Heller at the first five minutes. They say it a couple of times later in the episode. And I just kind of, that, that's a really good episode in so many ways and a really bad one in so many ways because you just have 10 minutes worth of the same thing that we know being told to you again and again and again and again. And obviously we've had the previously at the start as well. I just kind of, I, I got really quite bored with it actually. Mm-hmm. But yes. There's a lot. There's a lot of repeat dialogue um, throughout the seasons of, of 24. Um, I don't I, think it was as bad before this. I don't think it was as bad in the first three seasons. I think it's, it's season four is where it ha- starts happening, and it happens a lot. Um, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I I can't I can't tell you how many times um, either Heller or Curtis or Driscoll. Um, express that you know Jack has to find this override. Jack has to find the override. Jack has to find the override. It's going to melt down. Jack has to find the override. It must have in the first six episodes. It had to have been mentioned at least fifteen times. So it's 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 <laughs> um it's comical in a way, but in 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 another way, it's it's like they're doing it. You know, there's. I guess they're doing it, you know, assuming that people are just tuning in. You know, if you're just tuning in, this is what's this is what we're at. And it's it's annoying a little bit, but it's it's kind of it's kind of comical in a way when you think about it. Just listening to how many times they mention the word override, um, meltdown, <laughs> or expressing the the urgency of of stopping all of these nuclear reactors. Yeah. And it's particularly frustrating. Sorry, Josh. It's particularly frustrating given how 24 rose to prominence in the, after season one, they realized how popular it was and how much it required that binge viewing, that not tune in, tune out to like law and order type viewing. Then you have to watch one to 24 in a row. They rushed it to DVD. It was one of the most popular DVD sales of 2002 (laughs) And it sort of ushered in this wave of serialized television. You had The Sopranos before this and um, Oz as well on HBO. But in terms of broadcast networks, this is kind of unheard of. And then you end up with something like Lost in 2004 and Prison Break from Fox as well. And all these other glut of shows that if you miss an episode, you're going to be really confused because you're going to miss so much storytelling. It's weird for 24, sort of the pioneer of this, to in season four go okay well here's two times in an hour let's catch you all up in case you've missed a bit it it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't feel like 24 at all 
Yeah, I was I was just going to say, I mean, there, I, I, this is a stretch, but the only thing I can think of as to why they would do that so much is if you're watching it live, you're watching one episode with commercial breaks, and then you're waiting another week where you're watching another episode with commercial breaks, and, and, and they might be just trying to remind you, oh, yeah, remember, but but even still, it's like, okay, come on. I mean, you give the audience well a little bit more credit. <laughs> this is the first season when they moved to starting the season in January and running it uninterrupted every Sunday or Monday. I know they have like the double premieres on Sunday and everything, but this was the first season when they moved from, we'll start it in November and we'll, you know, they'll take a break at Christmas and there'll be odd weeks where they don't air an episode. This was the first season where they went, let's air it all in 20 weeks. Don't miss a week. And so there's no, there's no like, oh, it's been a couple of weeks or it's been a month or whatever since the last episode. So yeah. it might be worth just sort of having a two-minute thing of let's catch everyone up. No, no, it's it's every week. And it's plus <laughs> at times recapping conversations that were had two minutes ago in the same episode. Yeah, plus plus every single episode at the beginning starts with previously, previously on, 24. on 24. Yeah, if they want to catch people up, that's where you do it. Just do it at the beginning. Okay, fine. You don't have to do not, it. So not every not everybody joins at the beginning, Josh. Okay, what if like they're just, what if they're just getting off work at eight o'clock or nine o'clock or whenever it was coming on, and they didn't get home until it was already five or ten minutes into the end of the show. They don't see the previously on twenty four, Josh. Okay, people have people have jobs. All right. Well, some people just need to get the priorities right then. <laughs> <laughs> No. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. I cannot work past eight o'clock. Twenty four is on. Okay. <laughs> I need to be off. <laughs> I, need I need to, to work be off. It. I need to take an hour break. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be off by seven forty five every every Monday night. Okay. Oh. <laughs> uh. Oh, well, the last the last bit that we need to talk about in this section is obviously the uh, the Araz family, um, and. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there was a lot of filler. We were talking about filler. There was a lot of filler with the Araz family. Ninety percent of it. Yeah. And so, so I mean, okay, I get. Okay, they're they're this part of the. Uh, oh, I forget what it's a. So the part of the. So they're involved in getting this part of the plan executed. They're not necessarily a part of all the other things that are involved in the rest of the day, but this is their task and this is what they're about. And so they're, they're, and of course that's what all this first part is about. And they're really setting this up and they're like going so deep and stuff. It's like, Oh my word, you're spending way too much time. It reminded me of uh, some of it reminded me of like Terry amnesia um, or something like that. Maybe not quite as bad, but I, there were several times, especially with the, whole Baru's Debbie interactions. It was just really weird. Um, I I thought, I thought was... <laughs> eight, 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 the Aras family. <laughs> okay. Like... So, so, okay. So Joel, so we have, we have Nina, we have Sherry, we have Terry and we have the Aras family. What's <laughs> Is there an order? I'm glad you asked, Josh. So there's Terry. Nothing can beat that. She is by far the most annoying. Then you got the Aras family. 
And then you got, then I'll go with Nina. And then I'll go with Sherry. Not that that's a compliment to Sherry. She's just the least worst of the bunch. Okay. Nina more annoying than Sherry is an interesting take. Nina is, Nina, Nina is more annoying than, than Sherry because I can't tell you how many times during the season I would hear her say, I have information. I have information. And then she has no information. <laughs> that's the point. That's what makes her annoying. It's like um, Sherry, too. I have more information. No. <laughs> All right, anyway. I hate the arrest. And it's not so much Navi, because Navi on a surface, as a singular person, is a pretty good villain. As a singular focus. If they would have just had him there, I probably would have been all right. But then you have Beirut and Dina, or Dinah, however you pronounce it. And their dialogue between them was just grown and juicy. Like Dina with this real raspy voice and very slow and monotonous tone that she speaks with is makes me want to go to sleep. Okay. It's, it's, I don't know if that's how they told her to act or if that's how she normally acts because I don't remember seeing her in anything else. So I don't know if that's how she talks in every picture she's in or if it's just for 24 but it was and Beirut you know the I get it he's a kid so I understand it but just some of the dialogue that he father wants me killed because I messed up with Debbie it's just I'm, I'm giving myself a headache just talking about it but Navi I'm actually I actually don't hate him I mean, obviously he's a villain, so I hate him because he's a villain. But as a character, <laughs> I don't hate him. It's just, and hearing hearing Dina say, I would be happy to watch the reactors melt down. It's just like, I don't know if she's just trying too hard or what, but the whole Araz storyline, up until the point where, you know, they break away, up until the point where they break away, the rest of that was just mostly just inducing of, of I wanted to take ibuprofen because my headache was so bad. So I'm going to semi-agree with you. I think now he's Baruz, okay. Baruz is an awful character. He's, he's really awful, but I think that Jonathan, the dude who plays him, is fine. I think he doesn't have a whole lot to work with. I think it's not a very well-written character, and I think he does okay. Um, you are right about Navi. Navi is just absolutely wonderful. Nessa Serrano is so much fun. Um, he, he's even in the first episode where he's seemingly level headed and having breakfast and everything, you instantly feel super intimidated by him. You feel like he is he's scary and he's gonna obviously he's gonna be evil, but you feel like if this is someone you go up against, you're probably gonna lose. It's not someone that. It's someone who's going to cause Jack and CTU problems, essentially. And I think Dina, actually, I I, I like Dina. I do really like Dina. I really like uh, Shora Agdushlu, who plays her. I I think she is fantastic throughout this. Well, I say particularly. There are scenes, Joel, you are right. There are scenes in interactions with Baruz, particularly surrounding Debbie. Um, But there, there are some scenes where it's kind of really mundane. 
but then she's actually allowed to act and she's really good. And I, I say, I do really enjoy watching her throughout this. Um, the, the stuff in the section of episodes for next week, she's really good. And again, but you know, there are scenes where like when she's trying to, uh, when, when she kills Debbie and the aftermath of trying to cover it up or, 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 get rid of the body and make it look like Baru's had actually done it himself so that Nami wouldn't be disappointed in him. All of that. And then hit her breakdown when she realizes that Baru's going to get killed. That it, It's wonderful to watch. And she bounces off, off of Serrano so, so well. Those two as a pair, I think, work. Baru's does not work, which is really unfortunate. I had to, I had to put my microphone on mute because when you started to say that you like Dina, I was saying a lot of non-PG related words. So I had to put my microphone on mute real quick. Jesus. <laughs> Dina's, Dina's great. Dina's great. She should have been dead in episode one. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's harsh, I think. That's, that's really well, harsh. I, I guess if she was dead in episode one, then Bruce would be dead also. So that would take. Yeah, I could, I could have lived without Burries. Yeah. So <laughs> just uh, kill, kill, kill them both and have Navi go on a on a crime spree or something. I don't know. That being said, Burries is quite good when he takes down Tariq. I was quite impressed with him at that. That he notices the gun and he decides to just like kill him. He smacked down. He he is te- he is terrible, but he does have moments where it's like, oh, you've done quite well there. Yeah. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, so anyway, so this sets us up for this whole first section here. So we start with the secretary, Heller, and Audrey getting kidnapped, and then there's all this buildup for it, and then we end this section with them being rescued. But Favorite scene. But there, but there is something more that's happening this isn't the whole thing it was all a setup it was all a ploy a distraction and we'll get into that next week and so good to be able to talk with you guys about this and for you listening we would love to be able to get your feedback you can go to 24faithful.com and we would love to be able to hear from you 